What a powerful truth that is for us this morning, that Christ is risen, he has saved us, and therefore sin is broken, and he is stronger, and whatever is going on in your life, God is stronger. And frankly, if we would lift his name higher, I wouldn't even need to preach this sermon to you this morning, because in fact, that's the issue that is the, issue, the problem. We lift our own names higher instead of Christ higher. Let's go to prayer. Father, we come before you this morning with songs of praise and adoration, recognizing you as the great king of the universe. Thank you, Father, for loving us enough to send Jesus Christ to die for our sins, that we might have forgiveness of sins and a relationship with you. Father, thank you that... Christ, our Savior, is also Creator God, and the one who is over all, that He is stronger than all things, that sin has been broken, its power in our lives has been broken. And Father, we pray that we might be people who lift up the name of Jesus Christ, for at the name of Christ every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is our desire that in this place and in our lives... We might be a reflection and a living example and reality of the uh, reigning truth of Jesus Christ. And so our Father, as we now uh, turn our attention to the um, study of your word, to your message to us this morning, I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive, that we would welcome the truth, uh, that um, our Father, that the Holy Spirit of God would be very active in convicting and convincing us of the reality of these things. That our lives might come into line with what pleases you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure who has written this, although it's been quoted by many, many a writer, with respect to the church. And frankly, I wish it were not true. And Quite honestly, I don't want it to be true of Calvary, and I don't feel like it's true of Calvary, but here it is. And any given church is either leaving conflict, in conflict, or about to head into conflict. You can see why I don't want that one to be true. But most of us have had enough history with church that we might be inclined to believe that line to be true. Or a true description of church. So this morning, I want you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. And I want to talk to you about getting real about conflict. And particularly conflict among Christians. Because we learned last week that what God's real desire for us is that we would be peacemakers who sow peace so that there might be a harvest of righteousness. And unfortunately, instead of the peacemaking thing happen... Instead of the peacemaking thing happening and and a harvest of righteousness, James says you are scrapping. The church is scrapping. What's the cause of this? You're, You're picking the disorder thing instead of the peacemaking thing. And he talks about it being among you. So he's talking about his church. He's talking about the churches that he's writing to. He's talking to the history of the church He's asking the question, really, and we're asking the question this morning, what is it that causes Christians at times to act no differently than a group of people who don't even follow Jesus? 
And while it was true in the first century, it's also been true in the unfolding century since. In fact, a writer in the 17th century, a Jewish, Jewish philosopher, in fact, by the name of Spinoza, writing Tacitus, writes this. I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, the Christian religion, namely uh, charity, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Well, there's a lot of reasons why there were quarrels and fightings in the early church, the church of James' time. In addition to the petty personality squabbles that we have, there are fairly substantial issues in the early church, whether it be... um, uh, And by the way, each of these things are are entirely dependent on on, on a momentary uh, spiritual health situation person to person. But there were issues of leadership style, qualifications and entitlements... In the early church. There were doctrinal issues. With respect to the early church. There were certainly racial issues. You were putting together a Jewish people. With a Gentile people. People who would come to Christ. And putting them together in the same community. There were social issues. Whether you were uh, urban or rural. Whether you were rich or poor. Male or female. There are vision issues within the early church. It's purpose and it's mission. There are stylistic issues. Keep in mind the early church was making a transition from a a form of religion that was structural, it was ritualistic, it was ceremonial, it was closed, to a missional, sacramental, Lord's table, baptism, relational, uh, didactic, teaching, applicational style of ministry. Now that was then. But to be honest with you, not much has really changed. When you go down that list, you can almost repeat it all over again at a church like Calvary Baptist Church. Today, there's the same present momentary spiritual health issues from person to person. Uh, There's um, within the same church uh, various people who have uh, varying opinions on how leadership style should be uh, reached and implemented. There are some who feel that leaders should lead and others feel that it should be entirely democratic. There's style of worship issues. We all know this. How one should preach. In fact, some of you have varying uh, desires about how I would preach. Some of you would prefer that I would preach more doctrinally. Others of you would prefer that I would preach more how-to messages. And then there's still others of you who wish I would just give you a big hug every Sunday morning and be done with it. Okay, not all of you. And by the way, it's figurative. A hug from God's word. And then, of course, we all know about music. Some of you want hymns. Some of you want spiritual songs. Some of you want psalms. Some of you want your favorites. In fact, I heard of one church, and I like this. Their motto is, we sing each other's songs. Isn't that cool? We sing each other's songs. That's a church that may possibly navigate this thing with harmony, if they mean it. There's 
form issues, there's dress issues, there's length of service issues, there's structural and free flow issues. Not only that, there's pace of change realities. We all know that things are changing. And for some people, the church is changing too fast. For other people, the the church is changing too slow. And then, of course, there's vision and values issues. The purpose of the church. Is it a place to go? Is it a place to belong? Is it a place to launch from? Does it exist merely for the purpose of outsiders? There is purpose of community issues. Is a community for me? Or do I owe something to the community? And then there's focus and priority issues. Within the same church, people believe that church should be about standing against opposition. And that we should take our stand, we should take no prisoners. Others feel that church is about truth and principle. We should be about word and structure and predictability and leader-led forms. There are still others who believe that, that church is about personal development. And that for the most part, we should engage ourselves in, in discovering gift focusing and options-oriented services and, and learning from broad buffet of, of spiritual input. There are still others who believe that church is to be ministering to the disenfranchised and it's to be all about righting the wrongs of the world. And so we should be all about consensus building and compassion focused and benevolence and environmentally friendly priorities. Hugging trees. Within the same church. It's no wonder James asked the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? But in truth, it's not all of these things. It's not Jesus. It's not the message of Jesus. It's not religion. It's not about movement called the movement called church or Christianity. It's not about bad systems or structure at all. It's not about style of ministry. And it's not about the history of the church. You want to know what the eye-poppingly obvious reality of why we fight and quarrel in church? Well, it's found actually in the first three verses of chapter 4 of James. You just look at it and there's a word that's repeated there a whole bunch of times. Do you see it? A word or a relationship to that word shows up 17 times in the New International Version translation. And it is what? What causes fights and quarrels? No, no, it's not me. It's you. (laughs) It's you. You cause all the fights and quarrels in church. I'm not making this up. James says it. Let's read the text. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Okay, James, we get it. No, you don't get it, he says. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. 
That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the word of God. If you want to get real specific about the you reality and what really causes fights and quarrels, there are three things in this text. And and the first is me and you. We cause quarrels. We cause fights. And in particular, it has to do with, in verse 1, our desires. The word desires there is the word hedone. For the word we get in English, hedonism. And the, and the interpretation or understanding or description of that word has to do with what you really crave deep inside, your physical appetites that are not generated from your spiritual sensitivities. This is all about your baser stuff. And um, by the way, we, we already know that it's not right because it's battling within us. Okay, these desires, these these desires that we know are, if, if we act upon them, they will, they will in some ways negate spiritual benefit to our life. And we know this. The conflict is going on. Nevertheless, we allow these desires, the things we really want at the very basest level, to come out to the outside. And so this physical self-interest cravings are internally at odds with our spiritual sensitivities, and we let it spill out into the church. And so if I were to summarize these first three verses, I would say that that to get what we want, we smash and grab our way through life rather than trusting God to deliver what he wants us to have. Now you can see some pretty serious words in this small section right here. You want something, verse 2, but you don't get it, so you kill and covet? I think the kill word grabbed me quickly. In church? We're killing each other? We're murdering each other? Well, you know yourself that uh, there's more than um, extinguishing of physical life in terms of defining kill. Jesus himself said, if you hate your brother. You've already murdered. So how do we kill? Well, I want something. I want it. I want this. And the only way that I'm going to get it my way is if you get out of the way. And the only way that I can get you out of the way is to chase you out of my life, chase you out of the community. Because if we could get all the people who disagree away from us, wouldn't it be a wonderful place? But then we'd be left with ourselves and we'd be disagreeing with ourselves. So we kill We figuratively kill each other. There's a lot of ways to kill one another. I can just shut you off and freeze you out until eventually you die on the vine. Or we kill. Or we covet, I should say. Coveting is envying what another has. One writer describes it this way. The willingness to turn an earthly object of human desire into something of ultimate concern... 
the willingness to turn an earthly object of human desire into something of ultimate concern, which is really fundamentally idolatry. We covet. Get me that. Get me that now. I want that. If you're going to be the church that I'm going to hang out at, then you better get me this. Sounds like Samson. Remember Samson? He said to his parents, get me that woman. Get me that Philistine woman. Wait a minute, Samson, can't you go find somebody in your own church? Somebody who serves your God? Do you have to go after some woman who, who, who chases after a Dagon God? What, what's wrong with you, Samson? Get me that woman. I want her. That's what causes fights and quarrels among us. By the way, advertisers don't help. They tell us that we should have it our way. We deserve it. Make no mistake about it. Wrong motives will never produce right outcomes. He said, this whole deal is about your wrong motives, verse 3. You don't get it. You can't have it. This whole mess is a clear indication that you're not acting in faith. You're not taking this to God and trusting in Him. You're hoping that you can just simply get things your way. You're hoping that you can bring somehow to your life wholeness and joy and peace and security by fighting and feuding until you get it your way. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so it seems that in this, as he's writing, it's, 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 he asks the question, did, did you ever think of going and asking God about this? Well, for some, the answer is no. You do not have because you did not ask God. No, no, we didn't ask God. You, you ever do that with people who say, well, so this is what you wanted, this is what you think it should be. Have you taken this to God at all? Have you, have you, have you run this by God? Oh, no, I don't need to. I know it's right because I want it. But, but then there are others, it says here. It says, um, but some of you have taken it to God. But you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Some of you may be saying, wait a second. Um, I, I thought that Jesus, and he said, like, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be answered, open to you. And then, and then Jesus went on to say, anybody who knocks, it gets an open door. Anybody who seeks, he finds. Anybody who asks, receives. What's the deal then? I, I, I should get what I want. I should be able to go to God and ask him for, I, I'm asking and he's not giving it to me. Well, well let me give you just a, a brief side parenthetical thought about the whole issue of key to answered prayer. First of all, you need to ask God, not tell Him. If you ever hope to have an answered prayer, you need to ask God, not tell Him. Now, by the way, you don't go to God and say, this is what I want, this is what I demand, this is what I must have. That's the way Satan prays. Remember when Satan took Jesus out in the wilderness, was praying to Jesus? He said, hey, turn this, bread, or turn this, rock, into stone, or this rock into bread. He said, hey, Jesus, go up, and, go up on top of the pinnacle there of the temple and jump off. Hey, hey, Jesus, uh, worship me. That's the style of Satan. He tells. I want this now. I want you to take action this way. I I want you to serve me, my desires. You're not going to get your prayer answered that way. But there's a second matter that we need to cover, and that has to do with Matthew 7, 7. Sometimes we just don't read the whole storyline. That's not all Jesus said. He went on to say this. 
Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Ah. So, when we ask, God is going to give us in return good gifts. The point James is making here is you're not trusting in God for good gifts. You're going to God with wrong motives that you might take what you want and spend it on your hedone, your pleasures, which are not going to advance the spiritual situation in your life. You need to ask God in prayer. If you want answered prayer, you need to ask God trusting Him for what is best for you, the Christian community, and God's purposes. That's the key to answered prayer. God gives good gifts. But God's good gifts are not what the self-deceived by their desires want. Now he goes on. I've, I've found in my life that whenever people are out of sorts with God's people, and I'm not just talking about a minor spat that, you know, you say, hey, I'm sorry, I, you know, I spoke out of turn last time we were together. Please forgive me, and we're buds again. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about minor spats that we fix. I'm talking about major, major disconnect with God's people. I have found in my life that whenever that's the case, there are way deeper, deeper spiritual matters. It's usually a disconnect from God. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote about this. You might want to turn and look in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 6. It seems that Paul was reaching out to the Corinthian church and, and has, he said, he, I was offering you my heart and in return I'm getting cold shoulder. What's the deal with that? What, what, what have I done? What, what's, what's going on? And, and he writes, the, this is what he says. We have spoken, verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. It's just like I'm totally open-hearted to you. And we're not withholding our affection from you at all, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. He's saying, yeah, okay, fine. What's, what's the deal? Well, here's the discovery. Look at what he writes to them right on the heels of this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. Paul says, the reason your heart is closed to me is because you have hitched the wagon of your life to those kinds of things that are displeasing to God. 
You, you've, you've hooked up with, with stuff that, that, is, that is impacting and influencing, taking you away from Jesus Christ. And when your heart is close to God, your heart will be close to God's people every time. That's why James says to them, you adulterous people. Now, um, the reason he calls them adulterous, adulterous people is because they have become friendly with the world system. The second issue, the second issue that, that um, causes fights and quarrels among us is disloyalty to God. We're into everything else but God. And, and, and so, he calls, in fact, when he says adulterous people here, he's actually using the feminine, which you can do in the, in, in the Greek language, he's using the feminine tense of the word. He's actually saying, you adulteresses. Now, why would he say that? Because the church is the bride of Christ. You are a runaway bride, James says. You're turning your back on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You're befriending institutional systems and cultural values and people that hate God. And instead of influencing and impacting your setting, you're connecting to the setting. You're liking the setting. And believe me, and we all know this, that the institutional systems of our world, the the entertainment value systems of our world, the, the people who don't love God of our world are, are, not going to, to, are not going to benefit you in your walk with Christ. Whether it be universities or cities or schools or ca- countries or money or values or entertainment, lifestyle. Just pay attention to how you're treating people, James says. How you're treating one another. And this is not a description of, um, of a, you know, a, a night where you get caught in sin. In verse 4, he says, um, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses. This is a choice that you're making. A, a conscious decision you're making to hitch the wagon of your life to a train that's heading away from God. And he says to them, maybe you don't really know how serious this is. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe you think you can just dabble around with disloyalty and it's not going to be a big deal. Maybe maybe God's not going to be all bent out of shape about it. Don't you know, and this is from God's perspective, that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. No, to be disloyal toward God, James says, from God's perspective, is you have chosen to hate me. You've made a decision to hate me. And not only that, he says, anyone who becomes a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This is how serious the matter is. You're you're declaring yourself an enemy of God. What you're giving yourself to, who you're giving yourself to, 
Is it about pleasing the Lord or not? Is it about glorifying the Lord or not? Is it about deepening your friendship, deepening your friendship with Him or not? Is it about demonstrating your greater love for God or not? Maybe, he points out, you don't really understand how dangerous your life is. Maybe you don't really understand how, how, how serious a problem you have just lurking inside, waiting to choke you. In verse 5 he says, Or do you think? Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. This is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to interpret and must be interpreted carefully. And there are a lot of interpretations of what James is actually talking about here. Some people want to capitalize the word spirit and give the impression and the idea that don't you understand that the Holy Spirit is, is envious for you? And that plays out well in how we understand God's passion for us. But, but you need to know a couple of things in how to understand this verse. And I think the NIV has translated it very well. It's a small s spirit. Keep in mind that the word envies in this verse is never used in a positive way in the New Testament. And the word intensely, which by the way is desire, the same hedone, is never used of God. God doesn't hedone. God doesn't have physical appetites that are disconnected from spiritual goodness. And in verse 6, the but that's set up there of God's grace is a contrast to the previous verse. It's saying, in distinction to how you are, God gives more grace. So if we really want to understand, I think, what, the, what is lurking inside of us and grab hold of the full-blown understanding of this, what James is really saying is the breath of life, the spirit, the nefesh, that he gave you, the creator gave you, Jesus gave you, and rightfully owns, is an unfaithful want monster just waiting to destroy your life. You are, in fact, disgage, disengaging from the overcoming impact of God. It's obvious by your behavior. And turning your life over to your natural persona, which is an envy monster. And it's messing the church up. It's messing up the cause of Christ. It's, it's messing up your progress spiritually. And it's insulting God. Now there are some... You have a, the point here is you, you have a mess on your hands... If you are trying to manage you with all the trials, the temptations, the anger, the reality that you need to obey Scripture, the tongue problems, the purity choices you have to make, the preferential and prejudice issues you have, the lame faith that you're demonstrating, the abusive treatment of people, a competitive speech, self, uh, selfish ambitions, and full-blown um, want, you can't handle this. Now, if you're wondering whether or not you fit into this category, here's some diagnostic questions to unfaithful lovers. How many days a week does God get your first attention? 
How many Sundays per month are locked in for worship? How many paychecks gift the Lord first when resources are distributed? How much of the best of your free time is spent serving your friendship with God? How much of your God-given talent and giftedness is engaged in kingdom of Jesus stuff? How would people around you finish this statement? He or she really loves her, his, what? You finish it. So, are you warehousing some twinges of jealousy and envy? You wanted that assignment, you wanted that appointment. Why didn't I get that? Why don't I have what they have? I I resent the gifts they have, the gifting they have. A little misplaced friendship. A little laxing on your time with God. The whole thing can go haywire real quickly. It doesn't take much. You either... Cultivate hedone in your life or have it controlled by God. And that's why he says, but do you know? Have you not heard? God gives more grace. Regardless of of how much envy you have or how much your desires have been consuming you or how much spiritual toxicity has been in your life or the quantity of scraps you've been in or the maimed relationships around you or the most awful sins that you've committed or the disloyal acts toward God or the damaging fights that you've been in, God's grace is greater than all of that. You can have it all turned around in your life in an instant. That's the beauty of God's message to us and who he is to us. But God won't play the game of light. There's no low-calorie Jesus available to us. And what gets in our way of just embracing the grace of God and finally falling to our knees and saying, yeah, that's, that's me. It's, it's been all about me. That's my problem. It's all about me. It's, it's all about what I want. And, and, I, and I've been turning everywhere. I've been looking here and looking there and, and connecting friendships outside of God. They've been taking me away. But I don't want to come back because I'm too proud. Well, do you realize that God opposes the proud? He gives grace to the humble. The only way to turn this arrogant addiction to your own awesomeness and your insatiable emptiness around it is radical, heart-shaking repentance. That's what he says here. Listen, if this is you, if it's, if it's about you, if it's about about being disloyal to God, if it's about your pride. And by the way, pride is, you know what, God, I don't care what you say. I'm not listening to what you say. I'm not going to be teachable. Well, here's the facts. To that person, God bails. No, no, he won't leave you or forsake you. But, but he turns away from you. The opposite of, uh, of, of, uh, of blessing is for God to turn from you. He opposes the proud. He says, yeah, you want to teach yourself? 
You want to have everything the way you want it? You want to go around and two time on, on God? You want to be disloyal? You, you want to be out there hanging out with everybody else and being stolen away? Fine, go do it. He actually opposes you. Who of us in here can stand against the opposition of God? Maybe, maybe the reason your life is coming unglued and nothing seems to be working at all is because you're too proud to fall down on your knees and submit your life to God. Come to the end of yourself. That's what he says here. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. When you submit to God, the the devil has to flee. Come near to God. Make God your home. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Grieve, mourn, mourn, wail. You know the pathological foolishness to all of this is some people are actually out there laughing. Whooping it up. Medicating really their spiritual emptiness and vacuum with activities and entertainment and diversions and distractions and lots of noise so that it covers up the silence from heaven. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Believing sinners, writes one writer, are double-minded believers. Here's the danger. If you lose your connection to God, you will lose your confidence in Him. And that's why you have a lot of believers who are in the dumpster in terms of their spiritual life. And they have... They're being driven crazy in their mind. They have no idea whether I should go this way or that way. Because once you have disengaged and unhitched your wagon from God, you lose your confidence. So repentance is the only way to root out what's resisting God. Double-mindedness renders a believer spiritually and service paralyzed. And the truth is, until you do this, you will feel worse than you did before you knew Jesus. It's about attacking the heart and you will have a clear mind. And by the way, God may send trials to kickstart the process. That's what the grieving and the mourning and the wailing is all about. Partying on Saturday night can turn into the full weight of sin Sunday morning. So what's the deal here? Trade in yourself. That's what submit to God is all about. Cash in your self-interest. Trade in yourself. It's been a very bad friend. And trade up to God. Give yourself wholly to Jesus Christ. By the way, when you do, you will be able to resist the devil and he'll have to flee from you. Why? Because God is stronger. He will have to flee. Get rid of the sin that's in your life because God can't hang out in a dirty place. He won't. And you know what this come near to God and he will come near to you picture is all about? It's it's like come fully home to God. Stop running around looking for everywhere else 
to gain some sort of pleasure or happiness or fulfillment. Come fully home to God. Because he wants to make his home fully in you. Turn from your sin and face the reality of who you are in God's presence. Humble yourselves before God. Imagine, imagine crossing our arms in the holy presence of Almighty Creator God and saying, I'm not listening to you. I'm going to do it my way. And I want what I want. And I'm going to have it. James says, come on. See yourselves as you really are and humble yourselves before the Lord. Because he specializes in reversals. To the proud, he brings down. To the humble, he lifts up. He blesses. That's what lifting up is all about. It's, you want the blessing of the Lord? You, you, want, you want to have fights and quarrels, killing and coveting each other? You want to be hitching your wagon to everything but God? How about um, turning to him and receiving the blessing of God? That's the offer. Because God's Grace, his undeserved favor of us, is greater than anything that you have done to offend him. Today, in a moment of repentance, it can all be put behind. You think about it. Father, I pray this morning as we close. I thank you so much that you are an amazingly patient and long-suffering God. And you warn us and warn us long before catastrophe arrives. So, Father, this morning, I, I just ask on our behalf. Because in truth, lurking inside of each of us is this jealous, desiring that it can only be contained, can only be kept at ra- in abeyance as the power of God is, is active in our lives. And so Lord, um, the greatest tragedy would be for us to, to fight and quarrel with each other and miss the amazing opportunities to reach out into our community. To see you not only advance the things are around, but, but advance your work in our own lives. Father, I pray for a powerful work of God's spirit of repentance today. Repentance means changing our minds, feeling the full weight of this sin, to grieve, to, to be, to be uh, emotionally spent on the reality that we have, we have been disloyal to you. The one who died for us, how could that be? I ask, Lord, in this church that we would not be about ourselves. We would not be adulterous people and disloyal to you. We would not be proud people for 
what have we to be proud about? But that, Father, we might be people who trust you and have affection for you only and are humble people, I pray. As our heads are still bowed this morning, I just want to talk to you. Maybe, just maybe, somebody in here this morning says, wow, this, this was a description of how my life has been lately. It's just been all about me. It's been all about conflicts. It's been all about what I want. It's been all about selfish desires that have no bearing on spiritual progress. It's been all about disloyalty toward God. Or, or maybe, I haven't, maybe I haven't hitched my wagon to God at all yet. I've been sort of dabbling around, thinking maybe I can have Jesus' light. That would be, that'd be something. I'm really kind of proud. I, you know, I, I think I'm okay, but... I didn't think that was pride, but maybe it is pride. Maybe I've just been too I've just been too proud to admit that I need God. I'm at the end of myself and I really need God. Whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or yet to be one this morning, you need to submit to God. Humble yourself. Come to him. Come home to Jesus. Make him your home. The if if Home is where the heart is. Make Christ your home. Is there anybody who wants to slip up their hand and say, Pastor, would you just pray for me? Because you're describing me this morning. And I, I'm, I just want to, by this action, repent of the way I've been living. I want to turn fully to God. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Yes. Okay. Yes, anybody? This is your moment. Okay, thank you. I don't guess 10,000 people in Japan on a Friday morning thought that it'd be all over for them in the afternoon. You may never get another opportunity necessarily to, to have this moment with God. I, don't pass it by. Don't, don't rest in your pride. Okay, thank you. Anybody else? This is your moment. Okay, thanks. Up there. Balcony, yes. Come on. Okay. Our Father and our God, what a great and powerful and mighty God you are. A God whose grace is greater than all our sin. A God whose grace is greater than all of our disloyalty, all of our self-centeredness, all of our pride. All it requires is coming to the end of ourselves, falling on our face in front of you and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here I am. Take my life. It's yours. I want to come home fully to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for those who've uh, put up their hands this morning. There were many. This is a moment of repentance at this place. To your glory, God, would you honor yourself and lift up the humble. Bless them, Lord, as you have promised. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.